two years. That's how long it's been since the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a worldwide pandemic. Our lives were upended, businesses and schools closed, and staying home became a key tool in the fight against the spread of the virus. Now, as more people get vaccinated and restrictions are easing, the world is starting to reopen. So why do we feel so anxious? On today's Airwaves podcast, we're talking about the surprising emotions you might be feeling and why getting back out in the world may be stressing you out. I'm your host, Michael Lauren Prue, and joining me today with some tips to help us all identify and manage these emotions are two experts with DC Health Psychology, Dr. Robin Pashby, a clinical health psychologist, and clinical psychologist, Dr. Jennifer Bacalar. Thank you, ladies, for joining us today. Thank you. Glad to be here. So obviously, this is a very important topic for all of our listeners, and I am so excited to deep dive into our conversation today. But let's start with a bit more about each of you. Tell me your background and what led you to pursue specialties in mental health. Dr. Pashby? I studied and got my PhD in a dual track medical and clinical psychology program at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences right here in Bethesda, Maryland, and then did my training, my internship training actually at the Washington DC VA hospital and did some training in between there at Walter Reed Army Medical Center as well. So I've been around military service personnel for many years in my career and have found working with various military populations to be really rewarding and gratifying. I didn't always know that I wanted to be a psychologist, but I think really finding the the connection between mind and body and finding health psychology in particular, which really looks at the intersection of how people's physical and mental health coexist was what drew me to finding clinical health psychology and, and drew me to this field. I grew up in a military family, so I spent a lot of my life on the what's now the Walter Reed base and also attended the same dual medical and clinical psychology program that Robin graduated from as well. So I've had an extensive experience working at Walter Reed and the VA and did a specialty in, in trauma psychology. And what led me to, to pursue that specialty was really just the, the dualities that are inherent to to trauma survivorship, including the fact that a a lot of times it's not talked about and there's a lot of silence surrounding trauma and what we find is most effective in addressing it is breaking that silence and breaking that stigma. So the COVID-19 pandemic is considered a worldwide traumatic event. It's had such a major impact on everyone in so many different ways. But as we move toward a post-pandemic state, why is mental health the new crisis? I appreciate this question. I think from our perspective, there is no question that mental health is at the forefront of more discussion and attention as of late. But to us as psychologists who've been on the, essentially the front line of treating the mental health implications of this pandemic, it is not new. Um, This has been quite a journey. And I think I'm really thankful for the increased attention and awareness to mental health. And I think It's an opportunity actually for us to start to break down some of the mental health stigma that has been so persistent in our world. And I know military personnel are working really hard to break down that stigma as well. Even just things like the the old belief that if you seek mental health service, that it might affect your ability to move forward in your career or even to have a career in the military. I think 
you know, people still come with that myth essentially as a prevailing factor in whether or not they seek mental health treatment. And I'm, I'm glad for this opportunity to set the record straight that mental health care is accessible to military service members without career impact. Erasing the stigma surrounding mental health is so important. We need to prioritize mental health and seek help when needed. So let's talk about something that we all might have experienced during the pandemic, and that is COVID fatigue. Why do we feel so tired and run down as the pandemic continues? Sure. So when we initially were responding to to COVID, it was what we call an acute stressor. So it came on very suddenly and abruptly, and we had to adapt immediately. Now, having spanned uh, coming up on two years, we've been in a constant state of alarm for for this entire time. And of course it's waxed and waned here and there. And the system that's designed our, our fight or flight response has essentially been going idling like an engine for an extended period of time. And so that wears down our body and our mind as it continues. And it's really starting to feel as if there's no end in sight. We get through one variant, we start to have hope this might be over, and then we learn another variant is on the rise. Why is uncertainty a difficult challenge for our mental health? I think to me, uncertainty really represents one of the, the hallmark features of what causes anxiety for people. If we think about unpredictability and uncontrollability as the two primary drivers of anxiety, this pandemic has really topped the charts on both of those and for such an extended duration of time now. And so this whiplash that we keep getting, you know, we start to feel a little bit hopeful and then a variant comes along or we get a vaccine and then maybe there's breakthrough cases and there's still some vaccine distrust that is circulating as well, right? People have worry about things that they don't either understand or have heard conflicting information about. So I think all of this feeds into uncertainty unpredictability and lack of control. And all of those factors contribute to this sort of wide range of feelings. In fact, I was talking to my daughter, I don't know, several months into the pandemic, and I was trying to get a sense. She's, she was only five at the time. And I was trying to get a sense of what she was feeling. And I said, you know, what's going on? Like, how are you feeling about all of this? And she said, I feel everything. And I thought that is just about the best summary I could give. Everything, right? We have all of these dualities that, that Dr. Bacalar spoke of earlier, right? We have discouragement on one hand, like, oh, there's breakthrough cases, yet we have hope. Oh, there's a booster coming. We have sadness about all the things we've lost, yet joy about all the things that we've gained, like more time with family or more time in sweatpants or whatever it may be. We also are balancing things like grief and loss with gratitude. We're balancing things about apprehension for our next steps, right? What does it look like to re-enter this whatever new normal looks like with also the desire to just get it over with? So I think your daughter is spot on. I mean, it, it's certainly a new emotion every day and we are just feeling everything. Now, for some people, that might be the fear of the normal. Why is the thought of returning to some of our pre-pandemic routines unsettling? Oh, that's such a great question. And I think 
for one, what is normal anymore that we've kind of wrestled with that question now that we have lived and are continuing to live through this pandemic that it's we've had to adapt to so much and adapt long term that we're really redefining what normal looks and feels like for ourselves and and for each other. And so part of that could be, you know, there were fair amount of things that we likely took for granted beforehand that we lost or that we had to radically change and the thought of going back to enjoying some of those things not knowing with that unpredictability and that uncertainty if we could lose them again is is understandably unsettling and just figuring out how we adapt in the long term do we keep our hopes up that we would get some of those those things that we had back again or are we really going to have to make these changes long term or, or permanently and just figuring out how to adapt can lead to anxiety as well. I mean, for me, it's really stressful trying to figure out how to behave around others again. Should I continue to physically distance? Do I need to wear a mask? Should I shake a stranger's hand or give a friend a hug? How do we lessen our anxiety and feel comfortable interacting with people again? Yeah, I think everyone having their own level of comfort and level of kind of balancing risk is is really feeding into that and one of the ways that i know robin and i talk about a lot in in our practice is communication and open communication with the the folks that we're spending time with whether it's our family or loved ones or at work that communicating about where we are and respecting where others are as far as their comfort level with physical contact is is key and also i think embracing the awkwardness of it and naming the awkwardness of it that it's not going to be a smooth process as we as we iron this out and that's completely to be expected i think another thing that really contributes to that awkwardness that jen i love the use of that word because there's no word that describes it better than just this is awkward as we try to figure our way out of this it's like a turtle coming out of its shell for the first time or something i think Part of also is remembering that what we are dealing with as individuals is we are not alone in that, right? So the people that we are interacting with are also coming out of this same time. And so when we talk to our clients a lot about really giving ourselves some space and some compassion around being awkward or feeling anxious or sitting with how hard this is, also respecting and offering that same compassion to the other people on the other side, because they too are probably feeling awkward and off-centered and off-balance, and who knows what that person's experience has been. You have groups of people coming together, all of whom have been through trauma and aren't quite sure how to act, remembering that you're not the only one feeling all of this stuff, right? That the person that you're meeting might be feeling it too. I think that's such valuable advice. I mean, communication really is the key. We've got to talk to each other. We've got to share how we are feeling. So as we're getting back into certain social situations, family holidays, parties with friends, kids' sports activities, even in-person meetings in the workplace, all things that many of us have looked forward to for a pretty long time, what if the return to things that we love is underwhelming or possibly disappointing? How do we handle those feelings? Yeah, absolutely. That I think there's a way that we can build up returning to whatever the new normal will look like as something we've longed for and something that has given us that those kernels of hope that we've held on to throughout this whole process. And then that return and what we find just in general, not only in the case of COVID, is that the lived experience is going to inevitably be more complex and intricate than the expectations of how we're going to feel. 
And so I think that really gets, gets at the heart of those dualities and those potentially contrasting emotions that can co-occur that, that we were both speaking to, that we may feel really excited and then we may feel this kind of letdown or also realize that COVID is still happening even when we've started to reconnect and re-enter. And certainly the experience has been different for everyone. Why would a return to normal be especially difficult for someone who lost a loved one, a friend, or a coworker to COVID-19? Why might they be feeling survivor's guilt? A return to normal might be especially difficult for someone who's experienced a loss to COVID-19 for a number of reasons. I think one, just because when we see the external world returning back to or defining a new normal and we're in a place of of grieving and grieving that loss it might lead to feelings of isolation or like the world is moving on when we're still in a place of of feeling that loss quite acutely similarly with survivor's guilt this is a it's a virus that when we all started we were all it impacted you know it had the potential to impact everyone and some folks who come from similar backgrounds, who had similar risk factors, why did the virus take one person and, and another person survive? That it leaves us with a lot of questions that can contribute to that survivor's guilt, potentially. And on the other hand, there were people during the pandemic that experienced a lot of positive changes. Like you mentioned earlier, Dr. Pashby, they got to be home and telework, have more flexible work schedules, more time with the kids, new hobbies. Should people feel ashamed or guilty for feeling happy? So what an interesting question. Anytime the word should is involved, I always want people to flag that in their brains and think about why they're questioning that. As a psychologist, I had to just pick up on that. But so no, people should never feel any particular way. They feel what they feel. And then if they are feeling guilty, then we just try to go a little bit deeper and understand what is making a person feel guilty. Is it that they don't feel like they are allowed to feel happy about, you know, developing a new hobby when someone else next to them lost their home or their job or a loved one, right? And so how do you sort of hold these two realities at the same time, right? That there isn't a fairness to this. There are inequities and inequalities in this. And this is a really, this pandemic has changed our experience of the world. And I think sitting with the fact that we can both be happy with something in our lives and feel grief and sadness for what's happening to someone next to us or even to something that happened in our own life, right? I mean, it's also possible that you lost a loved one and you learned piano and you can feel both of those things at the same time. And I think that's really hard for people to hold on to. I mean, it's one of the things we work on in therapy a lot is, is practicing sitting with those two things at the same time. The other thing I've noticed is people making big life decisions during the pandemic. Some have changed jobs or opened new businesses. They've moved, started or left relationships. Lots of RVs and vacation homes flying off the market right now. Why is that? We've had similar observations, certainly among clients. And, you know, of course, everyone's going to have their own individual reasons and circumstances. I do think broadly speaking that an event like this kind of really forces folks to stop and take stock of their lives. And we're kind of in this homeostasis under typical circumstances. And that was really upended with COVID. And so really thinking about what are my needs? What does bring me joy? Life may not be guaranteed tomorrow. We could catch this virus that 
it leads people to reprioritize and, and pursue things that meet meet their current needs and priorities. So we've discussed an array of emotions that people might be experiencing right now, but getting back to the stress and anxiety, how can I overcome new feelings of anxiety I developed during quarantine? There's so many things to consider here. First, anxiety is actually a big bucket term that means a lot of different things to different people. And so one of the things I like to do with my clients is ask people to tune in and understand how you as an individual experience anxiety, because it really does show up differently in different people. For some people, it shows up like the classic sort of feeling agitated or worrying a lot or not being able to sleep. For other people, it shows up a little bit differently, like wanting to people please or wanting everything to be perfect or, you know, needing to be really busy. So I think part of it would be to tune into what your expression of anxiety is and really understanding how it's impacting you. And then next, I always ask people to pay attention to how anxiety is impacting not just you from a mental health perspective, but from a physical perspective too, because mind and body, of course, we know are connected. And so if you are experiencing things like changes in your appetite, changes in your sleep patterns and schedule, feeling jittery, feeling a lot of tension, physical tension, those are good hallmark signs that you might have something going on. Once you have a sense of what your anxiety looks like, then of course, it's a little bit easier to figure out how to go about addressing that. And we always want to address things from a mind-body perspective, of course. These opportunities to change nutrition or change physical activity levels are really our primary ways of managing our anxiety and our mental health. So even if you you know, sprained your ankle during COVID and you're not running like you used to or other things like that, or if your body is stiffer and more uncomfortable, if you've gained 20 pounds during COVID, which by the way, many, many people have, you're not alone and your body just feels different than it did prior to, you don't have to compare yourself to where you might've been two years ago, right? Simply going out and moving in the fresh air and getting some exercise is a huge benefit to your mental health. So those are just some really strict kind of behavioral things that I would encourage everyone to tune back into, but I'm sure Dr. Bacalar has some other ideas too. Yeah, I think kind of to add add on to that too is just taking the idea of caring for ourselves and coming up with these routines can be daunting. And so balancing some degree of flexibility within that structure and within that routine is absolutely key, whether that's getting through the next five minutes or the next five days, whatever you feel you need to do to be able to wrap your head around coping with that anxiety, really tailor it to what you're needing and how you're feeling in that moment. So let's talk about some ways to handle social anxiety. What if we're just not ready to get out and party like it's 2019? I think first normalizing that, that it makes kind of for all of the reasons we've started to talk about that it makes complete sense that we are going to be feeling that discomfort and feeling that awkwardness moving back into social spaces and kind of taking the pulse of where we are ourselves and where others are. So really reiterating that communication piece. And also there are some thinking traps or or distortions that we may experience, like seeing folks post on social media and thinking, well, their re-entry is going really smoothly and they're going back to, you know, they've developed a Peloton routine and they're doing all these new activities and I haven't baked a single loaf of bread and my house is a mess. What we see on the outside and how we're feeling on the inside are going to um, 
not always overlap perfectly. And folks are going to curate what they share with others. The social piece is a really interesting piece too, because obviously COVID, this whole pandemic, right, forced so much social isolation. And that had such profound, and I will say, life-lasting impacts on people's mental and physical health. You know, the, the intensity of isolation that some people experienced probably literally changed them forever in a significant traumatic way, because we as human beings, connection is a primary driving need. And so again, if we go back to this idea of how interesting it is that the very thing that we lost that was so traumatizing and significant in terms of a detriment to our physical and mental health is now the very thing that is coming back and causing so much anxiety and fear for so many people. I mean, I hope, I hope the people listening are reading between the lines here that we are talking to people every single day. And these are well-adjusted, you know, educated, informed people who are really struggling with figuring out how to feel okay about this transition period. And I think transitions in general are hard. We didn't have much choice on the way into this pandemic, right? Things shut down and it was like a no choice, no question. Now on the way out, there's a lot more responsibility on us to make decisions, to set boundaries, to hold boundaries, and to assert our needs, even in an ever-evolving landscape where what is expected of us changes. And so I think there's a lot of room for us to feel more uncertainty in the face of this, more social pressure, even though it's the very thing that we so crave in some ways. So when the pandemic hit, much of our workforce shifted to a hybrid work environment, and many people started working from home. Now as more and more of these employees return to the office, what can managers and supervisors do to ease the transition back into the workplace? I have found that this is one of the stickiest questions that I talk with clients every single day about. And here's why. Because every single human being has a unique set of circumstances that affects his or her, their perspective on what feels right to them. So some people have been itching to get back in the office full-time since, you know, March 14th, 2020. Other people moved out of town and never want to step foot back in the office and basically every variation in between. And I think going back to what Jen said earlier, communication is going to be key, right? The more transparency there is around why decisions are being made as much as possible and why people have certain feelings or preferences around them is going to help. Now, I also respect limits around that. So a person who has maybe a particular health circumstance that makes him or her more vulnerable may not feel safe or comfortable wanting to talk about that openly. And I think that's, you're right. But again, to whatever extent you feel comfortable communicating openly with the other people around you, around what your boundaries are, what you have going on at home, childcare, elder care. There's just so many factors. It's just not a simple answer. And as the employee, what can I personally do to ease my transition back into the workplace? Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's a number of 
things that I would imagine balancing in this position of one, on the one hand, making plans and also being prepared to adapt and pivot. Being in a place where we're consistently normalizing and reorienting to this is a collective trauma, it's an ongoing collective trauma, and it's not going to necessarily feel smooth or linear that we can make the best of plans. And then we're often going to need plan B or plan C, depending on what circumstances change. Can't say it enough that the communicating with our loved ones about our work situation and with our coworkers and supervisors to the extent we feel comfortable and within appropriate boundaries about our personal situation is going to, to kind of keep everybody on the same page and, and adapting to each other's needs as, as best as possible. So speaking of taking care of loved ones, I'm a parent. I know so many of our listeners are parents, and it's clear that COVID and the pandemic has had a major impact on our children's mental health. How do we help our children through the anxiety and the fear that they might be feeling? So this is just deserves its own whole podcast. I will just say I am the parent of a young child and this has been brutal to say the least. So Michael, I'm with you. And to all parents out there, I feel you. Here's what I've been telling myself. The more I pay attention and take care of my own mental health needs, the better positioned I am to provide a sense of security and stability for my child. So when I feel destabilized, when I feel anxious, I inevitably am not in the best place to be a secure parent just because of the nature of anxiety and feeling uncentered or decentered. So I work really hard on talking to my clients and myself around prioritizing self-care, both mental health and physical health, with the eye of my value is to be the best parent that I can be. And in order to be that, I have to work on myself. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that really trying to appreciate that, yes, depending on the age of the child, my, my daughter is six right now as well. So I am with you in this boat. And I think her understanding of what's going on is certainly different than someone parenting a teenager. And right. I mean, these are all difficult scenarios just in different ways, but for the young kids, I would say that this is actually their normal. So it's a little less I think actually destabilizing for them than it is for some of the older adolescents who do remember much more about what pre-COVID life looked like and have a lot of the grief reactions going on just similar to us. So I do think that we have to sort of recognize that while we may be experiencing a lot of grief, that maybe our younger kids aren't quite there it's hard for us to appreciate that because of course we are experiencing it for the older kids. Certainly this has been horrific for the older adolescents and obviously offering to support them in whatever way we can as parents, but also offering to get them whatever mental health support they might need, whether it's through school counselors, whether it's through peer support groups or therapy groups, individual therapy, there's so many different avenues where they can have an opportunity to connect with people who are also struggling. I think I read recently that Gen Z is one of the most dramatically impacted groups of people going through this pandemic because of what they have lost in terms of opportunity. So this is a really long-term ongoing issue. And I think we have to recognize it as such right now and really start investing in the mental and physical health of these, these young people. 
So as we wrap today, I think it's important that we point out everyone is going to have feelings of anxiety and stress from time to time. But how do we know that these feelings are normal or a sign of something more serious? At what point should we reach out and get professional help for our mental health? I would say there are three primary signs to look for. And one is level of distress. So if you notice a significant degree of distress that extends beyond your typical level of worry or your typical level of having days when you feel down or irritable. And then that second key sign to look for is the impact on your daily activities and how you feel like you're able to go about your typical routine. And if that starts getting disrupted, like you're not able to get out of bed, not eating regular meals, anything that you have been used to doing that you're not doing anymore, or that you're doing that is causing harm or potential harm. And that's where that third sign of significant change. So whatever your current typical is, if there is a marked departure from that, or if you observe signs in a loved one that is significantly out of character for them, then we would highly recommend seeking professional mental health care. Absolutely. And I just want to thank both of you for joining us today to talk about the surprising emotions we might be feeling as we navigate the new normal post-pandemic. It's so important that we take care of ourselves, our family members, friends, and coworkers, and we work together to erase the stigma of mental health. If you are struggling with mental health, please reach out and get help. And you can learn more about the command's response to COVID-19 by visiting our website for additional information and guidance. And that's it for this edition of Airwaves. Thanks for listening.